Uh, my name is Mitchell. I'm one of the pastors here at Village. It's so wonderful to be back with you tonight. Please do keep your Bibles open. So we'll be working our way through the entirety of 1 Kings chapter 12. But here's how I want to begin with a question to you. When's the last time that you have felt truly stupid? Like you just really made a blunder. For me, it was a few months ago, back in March. It seems to me like everyone who went through COVID sort of came out the other side with some sort of regretful purchase, or at least like a big sale. Uh, For me, it was a car. I bought a car in my fugue state. And at first I was really proud of myself. I hadn't had a car for about a year or so. I was planning on going on a a road trip right after I got out of isolation. I needed a car for that. So I'd been saving up my pennies. I finally had just enough money saved up where I could buy a car outright with cash. After a few sort of failed attempts during ISO to secure a vehicle, I finally stumbled upon a family south of the city south of Brizzy, who are selling a car. And at first, everything seemed to be lining up with a divine precision. But then things started getting a little bit weird. Uh, The family I was talking to became increasingly more difficult to communicate with. They weren't replying to messages. There was kind of a lack of clarity in a number of questions I had. They were sort of jerking me around as to whether or not the car was going to have a fresh roadworthy done on it. They wouldn't give me their address until I was literally in the Uber on my way down, just heading towards Ipswich. And still, I went to go look at this vehicle. I end up being dropped off in the middle of nowhere, you know, hours out of isolation, with a wad of cash in my pocket chatting to this mom and daughter who I now realize in hindsight were being less than forthcoming about the vehicle that was in front of me. Everything in the back of my head was screaming, Mitch, just walk away, walk away from the situation. I mean, walk to where, I don't know. I was in the middle of nowhere, but just walk away. But I didn't. Instead, I bought it, this car without a roadworthy, and I drove it home. But look how happy I was. Look at this fleeting moment of happiness. I get home the next morning, bags all packed, ready for my holiday. I'd, I'd lined up a mobile mechanic to come around to my place to run a, a little inspection on it, get a roadworthy put on it. So he, he comes, 8 in the morning, Friday morning, he comes, he pops the bonnet, spends less than 20 seconds looking at this thing, slams the hood, turns to me and says, mate, I don't know what to tell you, this thing's a piece of junk. He said, I'm not even going to finish the inspection. I'm, I'm not even going to charge you my call-up fee. I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go. Dude, I feel so bad for you. If I were you, my advice, take this car, drive it straight back to Ipswich, get your money back. After a week of fighting on the phone, going back and forth with this mom and daughter, obviously that wasn't going to be, uh, that wasn't going to happen. So I end up having to cough up thousands of dollars that I did not have to get that car put back on the road. Now, don't at me. Uh, there's nothing There's nothing you can say that I haven't said to myself, okay? And yes, I now do know that it is actually illegal for them to have sold me this car, registered without a roadworthy. That's on me. The reason why, I mean, the reason why, though, I felt so stupid is this. I, like, I'm a bit of a car enthusiast. I grew up on a farm, wrenching on vehicles alongside my dad. Like, I'm by no means a mechanic, but... Like, I know my way around a vehicle. I know what sort of things to look out for. I know what sort of questions to ask. I did not follow any of my own advice when it came to buying a car. I, was, I had tunnel vision. I was foolhearted. I rushed headlong into this stupid decision. And that's why I felt so embarrassed, so stupid. I had to pay the price. 
Now, here's the thing though, right? It really is just money. Like I had to pay the price to get it on the road, but I'm, well, I'm gainfully employed, it's just a thing. I, I, I got the work done, I now quite enjoy cruising around in my 2004 Honda CRV. like life's okay. Today, however, today we find ourselves in a story where human stupidity actually costs God's people the kingdom. And not just the kingdom, but it actually paves the way for God's historic people, Israel, to rush headlong into idolatry, actually to turn a whole nation away from God and towards worshiping idols. Now, as we've already heard, helpfully, Christy and, and Matt, uh, in the introduction Bible reading, uh, we're in the second half of 1 Kings, in the second half of 1 Kings, and um, as soon as my clicker works, you'll see what's happening here. Thanks, Phil. So 1 Kings, where we left it off last term, you can see right there, um, Solomon, you have, uh, I can't read that from here, Saul, David, and then King Solomon, he's the wise guy, he built the temple, that's where we left things off, at the temple, and just as a bit of a reminder, in the first half of 1 Kings, we see King Solomon, he has inherited the kingdom from his father David, we saw him receive wisdom from the Lord, we watched as he built the temple for the Lord. But we also saw throughout the first half of this book that um, Solomon's motives weren't always pure. He had a divided heart when it came to his relationship with God. He ticked every box that a godly king was meant not to tick. And this all reaches ahead in 1 Kings 11 when we hear that the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who'd appeared to him twice. And because of Solomon's divided heart, God is going to divide his kingdom as Israel gets split in two. And you can see that there up on the screen, kingdom divided right in the middle there. Now, from this point forward, God's relationship with his kings is also going to be fractured because from this point forward, chapter 12 and onward, God never actually speaks directly to his kings anymore. He always speaks to his people through his prophets. And so what we're going to be getting from this point forward is kings and prophets are going to be in constant battle with one another. So you have the prophets who have the word of God or carrying the word of God, and you have the leaders of God's people. They're going to be divided, torn in different directions again and again and again. So here's what I want to do tonight. This story is quite significant, the splitting of the kingdom. I want us to arrange the story tonight thematically. I want to pick up on four themes that we see in this passage, and they are stupidity, security, sovereignty, and salvation. All right, our four movements for tonight. Hopefully, we'll discover together how God's still at work in our world, though, to save us, despite our human tendency towards sin and stupidity. That's where we're heading. Let's start with Act 1, stupidity. So tonight we meet two key characters in our story. You have Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Okay, and this first story centers on Rehoboam, who more or less goes down as the patron saint of stupidity. So who is he? Well, we first meet Rehoboam at the very end of chapter 11. King Solomon dies. We're told that his son, Rehoboam, takes the throne. And so Rehoboam, he's Solomon's son, next in line for the crown. And so chapter 12 opens with Rehoboam establishing himself as king. Now, how the events unfold could have been so uneventful 
had Rehoboam just exercised a sliver of wisdom that his old man had, because all he needed to do was have a fairly straightforward political discussion, a bit of a press conference, sort of schmooze his dissenters, and Bob's your uncle. He could have gotten on with ruling God's people. But as it goes, Rehoboam, he heads up to Shechem uh, for his coronation in 12 verse 1. Um, and we're told there how um, he has up for his coronation. He probably doesn't realize that trouble's afoot. So it's likely that he heads up there as a bit, a bit of formality. He's just got to sort of tick this box as a king. But then Jeroboam enters the chat. Sorry, Phil. Can I get a new clicker, please? I don't know. There's about five in the bag. We'll just try the next one, maybe. Um, but Jeroboam enters the chat. Now, we'll talk about him more in a second. But all you need to know at this point is that Jeroboam, up until this point, has been hiding out in Egypt. Okay? So he's been hiding out in Egypt because Solomon, King Solomon, actually tried to kill him. So there was conflict between Jeroboam and Solomon. And so, when we, the reader, hear that, thanks, Phil. Yeah, oh, I love this one. This is the original quicker we had when Village Church was planted. It's vintage, and it's never failed us. It is falling apart, though. So we, the reader, when Jeroboam pops up into the story, we should already be clued in that there is potential for conflict here because he's already had King Solomon after him. And so Jeroboam, they come along with all the people of Israel to the assembly, and they say to the new king in verse 4, hey, they say to Rehoboam, your dad was pretty harsh on us. Like Solomon ruled with a fairly heavy hand. We'll follow you, but only if you lighten the load for us. Only if you make things a little bit easier in your kingdom, then we'll follow you. And Rehoboam says effectively, okay, give me the long weekend uh, to decide, uh, to make my decision, and then come back to me. So all the people leave, Rehoboam, he speaks, he takes his three days, he speaks to the, the advisors in verse 6, the same ones who counseled his dad. And verse 7, they replied with this, Today, if you'll be a servant to this people and serve them, and if you respond to them by speaking kind words to them, they will be your servants forever. It's great advice. It's sound wisdom. Speak kindly, be gentle, and you'll have loyal followers. Then look at verse 8. Rehoboam says immediately no. He turns to his mates, the ones who grew up with him in the palace, the royal frat boys, as it were. And notice the language in verse 9. What message do you advise that we send back to this people? We. What should we say to the people? You can tell straight away who he's aligned with here. And this is their reply in verse 10. The young man who'd grown up with him told him, this is what you should say to this people. Quote, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Although my father burdened you with a heavy yoke, I'll add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, I'll discipline you with barbed whips. Now that phrase, my little finger is thicker than your waist, look, most commentators reckon I mean, literally, literally the phrase is my little one, my little one. Most commentators reckon it probably not referring to their finger. I'm not going to say it. We're in church, okay? I'll let you connect the dots. But just imagine what a bunch of royal frat boys are exercising a bit of power. What sort of rejoinder they might come back with. It's likely it was a bit of a dirty joke. And guess what? 
Rehoboam, God's king, says, oh, yeah, that's great. I love it. Cheers, lads. Let's do it. Goes back to Israel, relays this beautifully poetic message. And you can just imagine the response. Well, you don't have to. We're given it in verse 16. All Israel saw the king and not listened to them. And the people answered, well, what portion do we have in David? We've no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Israel, return to your tents. David, now look after your own tents. And so Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the Israelites living in the cities of Judah. In other words, the kingdom is split. Ten tribes head up north, now referred to as Israel, ruled by Jeroboam. One tribe remains in the south, where Jerusalem and the temple are, referred to as Judah, now led by Rehoboam. But that's not all. Stupidity doesn't stop there. Immediately, verse 18, King Rehoboam, he sends a minister of forced labor up to the north, no doubt likely to flex his new muscles, show them who's boss, prove he can rule with an iron fist, but this guy is met with a bit of a rocky reception. Literally, they stone him to death. Rehoboam, he runs back to Jerusalem, immediately mobilizes tens of thousands of military men to march on the north, force them into submission, reclaim the kingdom for himself. I mean, Rehoboam's story is stupidity wrapped in pig-headedness and garnished with arrogance. He rejects wise counsel. He spouts off crude rejoinders. He sends the wrong man on the wrong mission. He initiates all-out war. And yet, I don't know, I'm kind of sympathetic to him. I mean, he's dense, yes, but you don't really get the sense that he's necessarily, like, malicious. I mean, he's unwise, sure, but he's kind of a picture of, of, of your sort of average Joe just kind of bumbling their way through life, making the wrong decision at every turn. In many ways, Rehoboam is me. I am Rehoboam. How many times have I rejected counsel of uh, people who are much wiser and godlier than me, only to find those who I know are going to agree with me already? How often do I seek to surround myself with those who I know are going to puff up my own pride? And sure, I might, look, I might not be marching into war, but how many times have I marched into situations that I know aren't good for me without first stopping and seeking God's voice on the matter? I think in many ways, Rehoboam, he's given to us as a picture of what most of us would look like if we were left to our own devices. If, as we'll see in a few minutes from now, if God did not intervene by his sheer grace. More on that in a moment, because first we need to hit pause, get back to our other key character, Jeroboam, and get to know him a bit. One who I think is a bit of a picture of what, what it looks like for stupidity to go unchecked. That brings us to Act 2, security. Jeroboam's storyline, we find a narrative of stupidity that breeds severe sinfulness, and it's all because he tries to grasp at security, at control for himself. Now, Jeroboam's narrative arc, it actually begins one chapter back, chapter 11. It's crucial to see what happens there to understand the story here. See, back in chapter 11, if you've got a Bible in front of you, verse 26, we're introduced to Jeroboam. He's a servant of Solomon. So this is, uh, well, King Solomon's still alive. He's a servant of Solomon. Sounds like he's a bit of a, like, tradey, extraordinaire, jack-of-all-trades kind of guy that can swing a hammer and pour concrete and run electric wiring and hook up plumbing, etc. Because Solomon takes notice of him, puts him in charge of his department of labor. But here, here's where things get interesting, all right? 
verse 29, a prophet appears. He meets Jeroboam on the road outside Jerusalem. And he tells Jeroboam that God's fed up with Solomon. And then the prophet, he tears his coat apart to pieces. And he says that in the same way, because Solomon has turned his heart away from the Lord, God is going to tear the kingdom away from him. But he won't do it in Solomon's lifetime. He'll spare him the agony. He'll do it through his son instead. And Jeroboam will get ten tribes. And Solomon's son Rehoboam will keep his one tribe as a sign of God's faithfulness to his covenant promise to David. Solomon, he catches wind of this. And as you can imagine, tries to kill Jeroboam. That's why Jeroboam flees to Egypt, remains there as a bit of a uh, political refugee until Solomon dies. But now, okay, here's what I don't want you to miss, though. God gives Jeroboam a very specific promise. He says to him in verse 38 that if Jeroboam obeys all that God commands, walks in his ways, does what is right, keeps the statutes of David, then I will be with you, says the Lord, and I will build for you a lasting dynasty just as I did for David. In other words, God's giving Jeroboam the keys to the kingdom if he listens to God's voice, walks in his ways. Let's put that another way. God is promising Jeroboam ultimate security. Now, ready to jump back into our story. Come back to chapter 12, verse 25. Jeroboam, he's just been crowned king in the north. Spent some time sort of jujuing his new kingdom with his magic hammer. Uh, and then this happens in verse 26. Jeroboam said to himself, well, actually, the translation is literally, Jeroboam said in his heart. Which is innocent enough. I talk to myself all the time. I'll confess. But notice the narrative here. We've just come out of chapter 11 where we ran into a huge heart problem. Because four times we're told in chapter 11 that Solomon's heart had turned away from the Lord. And now, Jeroboam speaks in his heart. And within two verses, Jeroboam becomes a cult leader. What happened? What happens is that Jeroboam fails to trust God's promises. And instead, he grasps at security for himself. Okay, so verse 26, Jeroboam said in his heart, the kingdom might now return to the house of David. If these people, the ones in the north, if they go to, to offer sacrifices in the Lord's temple down in Jerusalem, the heart of these people will return to their Lord King Rehoboam of Judah. They'll kill me and go back to the king of Judah. And so the king sought advice, and here's what he comes up with. Verse 28, then he made two golden calves, and he says to the people, well, going to Jerusalem, too difficult for you, just stop. Israel, here are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. He sets one up in Bethel, puts the other in Dan. Verse 30, this led to sin. Instead of trusting God and his promises for him and to him, Jeroboam becomes anxious in his heart. He's nervous. His people might reject him. And therefore, in order to hold on to his own, quote-unquote, kingdom, he must make himself secure that's his rationale for starting up a false religion. But I do think there's a sad warning for us in this as well. You, you may have noticed the scene sounds basically like a repeat of, of, of Israel back at Mount Sinai in Exodus 32 when God first rescues Israel from slavery, but they respond by pressuring Aaron into making a golden calf that they can bow down to. 
it is possible that Israel's actions back there at Mount Sinai helped pave the way for a more wholesale idolatry to enter into the life of God's people here and now in this cultural moment for them years later. And I think for us, like we might think that our own sin is our own business. But sadly, there is a chance that our sin may be embraced by those who come after us in further and greater ways, potentially messing up whole future generations. Now, we don't know, of course, but in light of this story, I think that is something worth thinking about. But let's come back, final bit of Jeroboam's story. Uh, there's this really funny thing the writer does. Notice how sarcastically the writer recounts how it is Jeroboam makes his own religion. And just notice the amount of times the writer pokes fun at him. He does it, I reckon, by stacking up the word made, like to make, over and over and over again, showing us just how it is Jeroboam's pulling this religion out of thin air. Okay, so verse 31, we'll go through it quickly, but just look up on the screen there. Jeroboam also made shrines on the high places, made priests from the ranks of the people who are not Levites. Jeroboam made a festival in the eighth month, 15th day of the month, like the festival in Judah. Offered sacrifices in the altar that he made. This offering in Bethel, Bethel to sacrifice to the calves he had made. He also stationed the priests in Bethel for the high places he had made. He offered sacrifices on the altar he'd set up in Bethel. He chose this month on his own. And he made a festival for the Israelites, offered sacrifices on the altar, and burned incense there. Now, sure, it's an innocent enough word, right? It's just a common verb. But I think the writer, in deliberately overusing it, is doing so to mock Jeroboam. Like, I think our writer of 1 Kings is probably created enough to have just leaned on a few other verbs to get his point across. It's likely intentional that he does this to show us how it is that Jeroboam's cult is both different and stupid. Right? It's different in that it's a deviation from God's word and God's ways. And it's stupid in the sense it's just completely made up. Jeroboam made, he makes, he makes, he makes, he makes his cult out of, out of no one, out of nothing. But that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? You know, anytime we trust ourselves over trusting God, we ourselves end up making a religion in our own image. Funnily enough, the other day, uh, sitting in a cafe, chatting to the barista and some other people that were there. Um, we were talking about cults. I don't know why. Um, and what goes into being a good cult leader. Right, this is all tongue-in-cheek. Don't worry, I have no intention of starting one. Uh, but firstly, we reckon you need to look the part. Uh, so an all-linen white suit is a must. Uh, you have to have a lot of social connections. Uh, it doesn't hurt to own a bit of land or maybe secure some property to set up on. Uh, we were just kind of seeing how many boxes between all of us we could tick uh, in, in terms of setting up a cult. Here's where we got stuck, though, on what sort of product to sell. Any successful cult you know, sort of need to, to sort of orient themselves around a, a good product, right? You've got to make money. You've got to get your face out there, set up at those markets and music festivals and whatever. I made a pitch for sugarcane juice, uh, but then we decided we didn't want to live in Bundaberg, so that was vetoed. So don't worry, I probably am not going to become a cult leader. I, well, I don't have the energy for that anymore anyway. Uh, but more seriously, though, although I have no intention of starting up my own religion, I am nevertheless far too often a disciple of Jeroboam. And what I mean by that is, I am far too often prone to making security my own God. Right? Far too often, I'll choose to walk by logic, not by faith. Or 
choose careful calculation over commitment to Christ. And this really hit home for me the other night. I was chatting with a friend, and they shared this tweet uh, with me from Tim Keller. He's a pastor over in America. And Timmy says this, the most rapturous delights you have ever had in the beauty of the landscape or in the pleasure of food or in the fulfillment of a loving embrace, they're like dewdrops compared to the bottomless ocean of joy that it will be to see God face to face. Don't sell out for less, as there is more than you can wonder. Like, I, I want to believe that's true, and I, I want to live in light of that, like I really, really do. But I find myself far too often caught up in the world's narrative that says to me, even friends will say to me, how much I am missing out on because I choose to faithfully follow Jesus. That there are some really exciting things that I'm just not in on. And I, 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 and I, I know it's a lie, but that doesn't make it any easier to ignore. So what's the way forward? Well, I want to draw out two implications from this story before wrapping up, because thankfully God's not silent in this story. He does speak. He does intervene in a way that shows us he's still in control and that he's not abandoned us in our stupidity. So act three, sovereignty. See, smack dab in the middle of the story, the writer pulls back the curtain and tells us what God is up to. We're back in Rehoboam's timeline. He's just taken the advice of the lads, right? Do not act kind to the people. Here's what we're told, though, verse 15. We're told that the king did not listen to the people because, because this turn of events, this twist, came from the Lord to carry out his word, which the Lord spoken through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam. Remember when the prophet came to town, told Jeroboam that God would tear the kingdom away from Solomon's son? Yeah, that's what's happening literally right here. See, the focus on the story is not so much look how stupid Rehoboam is, but rather take note of the divine sovereignty of God. Because what does verse 15 tell us? It tells us that God always had this end in mind, that this twist came in order to carry out his word. Now, here's why I think that's encouraging for us today, or at least for me. Because as stupid and sinful as I am, and I am, my stupidity ultimately cannot outpace God's sovereignty. My foolhardiness cannot and does not take God by surprise. In fact, somehow, by God's sheer power and wisdom, he's able to twist my stupidity to bring about his purposes in this world. This is a healing balm to my own anxious heart. That ultimately, human stupidity, it's not running loose, but it is on the leash of God's divine sovereignty. I reckon the ultimate place that we can see this, that the cross of Christ, isn't it? Acts chapter two, Peter, he stands up in front of the assembly has this beautiful little speech. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, signs. God did among you through him, just so you yourselves know. Verse 23, here it is. Though Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him, but God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Do you see... What could be more stupid than killing the Son of God? 
Does a greater evil possibly exist? And yet, what are we told? That this was God's plan. That through the wickedness of lawless people, God would work wonders to reconcile sinful humanity to himself. Divine salvation brought about through human stupidity. You know, so for yourselves, I reckon all of us here probably has those moments when our head hits the pillow at the end of a long day, or, you know, we're jolted awake in the middle of the night, our mind is racing, going over all the stupid things we've said or done, the times we've grieved the Holy Spirit, sinned against our brothers and sisters, or just done something foolish. The good news here is that you cannot out-stupid your way out of God's kingdom. God's still in control. You cannot derail his plans for this world. So, breathe easy. Breathe easy. However, that doesn't mean our sin or stupidity isn't cause for much sadness. That the kingdom of Israel split in half is sad. That Jesus was nailed to the cross is tragic. There's still consequences to our actions, which is why God doesn't just want to bend our stupidity to his will. He actually wants to save us from it, save us from ourselves. Uh, that's the final thing that we see in our story tonight, Act 4, salvation. See, in our first go through Rehoboam's story, we actually left it hanging right at the climax, right as he's mobilized his troops for war. But that's not the end of his story. Because in verses 22, 23, and 24, we see this beautiful footprint of God's grace. Here's what happens. Just as Rehoboam is about to begin his crusade, verse 22, the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, whole house of Judah, and Benjamin, the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says, you are not to march up and fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Each of you return home for, again we're told, this situation's from me. Guess what happens? They listen. Second half, verse 24. And so they listened to the word of the Lord and went back according to the word of the Lord. Friends, this is a, what we have here in our story is a living example of what repentance looks like. Repentance literally means to turn around. And that's literally what Rehoboam does. It's a rare moment where God's king gets it right, where he listens to the voice of the Lord, he repents, he goes home. Just, I think just as Rehoboam's stupidity wasn't the focus before, I think in the same way, his wisdom, as beautiful as it is, and, and it is, is not the focus here. Rather, the focus is on the sheer grace of God's divine intervention. The fact that God steps in. See, God, he, he, he steps in, he cuts Rehoboam off from any further folly, he saves Rehoboam from himself, and in so doing saves who knows how many countless thousands of of, of, of casualties of war, yet another unnecessary war. Listen, that God doesn't leave us to our own devices is actually the overarching story of the entire Bible. From the beginning of, in the garden, when we first messed things up, through to the cross and resurrection of Jesus, all the way to when Jesus is finally brought home as, as, as heaven and earth become one, and, 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 and we meet God face to face when Christ returns. The whole story of the Bible is God intervening in human history to save us from ourselves, to rescue us from sin, redeem us from our stupidity, bring us back into a loving relationship with God, but also with one another. And so whether you're Marva Rehoboam, 
and we're, we're finished now here. Whether you're more of a Rehoboam, kind of fumbling your way through life, seemingly making the wrong decision at every turn, or whether you're more a disciple of Jeroboam, trusting in yourself for salvation, making personal security your own God, the solution is the same. It begins by listening to the voice of the Lord, spoken most clearly in Jesus, and by listening, we turn from our sinful ways, we repent, and we place our faith in Jesus as bit by bit we are remade into his image through the work of Christ's spirit in us. And so as we wrap up, look, if this part of God's word teaches us anything, it's that human sin and stupidity can really muck things up. But they ultimately cannot hinder the one true God. He's still in control. He's even now at work in the world, drawing all people to himself, loving us the same, leading all events, big and small, to a rousing conclusion where heaven and earth become one and pain and death and stupidity and suffering become no more. That's the hope that the gospel story gives us. It's the hope that this story points us to. It's the hope that we have in Christ. Let's pray for those things now. Our great and gracious Heavenly Father, we do confess that we are foolish creatures. We spend a lot of time walking in our own ways instead of walking in your ways, in the power of your Spirit. Lord, I do pray that, that through your Holy Spirit, you would convict us of sin, that we would repent, that we would turn around and come back to you, start walking back to you. Where, wherever we are here tonight, whether we're Rehoboams or Jeroboams or somewhere in between, I pray, Lord, that you would be working in our hearts to cause them to come alive. I pray, Lord, as well for the unity of our community, that we would be working together to spur one another on in growth, that we'd be working together to uh, proclaim your gospel to a world that doesn't know any better, to a world that naturally sets themselves up as their own gods because it's all they know. So Lord, I pray that you'd give us the wisdom and the power and the sensitivity to love our neighbors well and to love one another well here. I pray, Lord, that we would get on with uh, communicating this gospel truth to our loved ones, that we might bring glory to you, glory to your name in this world. And Lord, I pray that you'd keep us from uh, division within the community. Help us, Lord, in our stupidity. Save us from ourselves. Intervene in your loving mercy, that we might be reconciled to you and grow as followers of your son, Jesus. We pray all these things in his name.